It's the Do Politics Better podcast. I'm Brian Lewis. And I'm Sky David. You made it to Seersucker Thursday, although it appears you celebrated a day early. Clothes are a mood, and I felt like yesterday <laughs> being tomato sandwich day and watermelon day, I needed to wear a seersucker suit to go with the mood of the General Assembly. So, if clothes are a mood, your mood today would just be sloppy. <laughs> would be sloppy, because we did not end session last night until after midnight, which means we saw no session in the House today. The Senate got done early. They had a light agenda. Committee meetings were canceled. So, yeah, I'm kind of going casual today. It's Thursday, by the way. We're recording on Thursday afternoon. There were a lot of heavily watched items this week. Not a lot of action overall, but the few things they did act upon were things that people cared about. Yeah, so we come back from the recess and all of a sudden we see big ticket items in committee, starting with a rare appearance by Senate President Pro Tem Phil Berger and Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson in an education committee presenting the critical race theory bill. That was in the Senate Ed Committee for discussion only. There was no vote on that bill, and it did change some coming over from the House. The House version was more of a do not discriminate kind of vague bill. And then when it got to the Senate, they added in some provisions like if you're going to do one of these things, talk about sex, race, you have to post the curriculum online 30 days prior. So the bill got a little more complicated on the Senate side, and that invoked a lot of discussion. And we're hearing news from Senator Berger that voters may see this on the ballot in an upcoming election a referendum, if you will, where voters get to vote on this. And I'm not sure what that all entails. Senator Burr held a press conference yesterday morning, and that was concurrent with him filing that constitutional amendment bill. And it mirrors the language in other states and some progressive states like California that have language that would ban affirmative action. So it kind of centers around that language, but it goes in conjunction with critical race theory. Mm -hmm. And the battle lines look to be along partisan lines. Democrats saying that the state is considering legislation that could impede a teacher's right to teach history or their duty to teach history. And on the other side, many of the Republicans pushing the bill are saying that we have teachers that are going beyond the curriculum, teaching concepts that certain races or gender uh, is superior to the other. There is a superior gender. (laughs) Well, you're not going to be able to be a teacher in North Carolina public schools if this bill passes, Sky. Great. I didn't want to be one. (laughs) So we didn't have a vote this week. We're probably expecting a vote in in the coming weeks. Senator Berger said there would not this would not come up again for at least another 7 to 10 days. Okay. Well, this is a bill to watch. We have many marquee bills that are moving in the General Assembly. 
one of which we've been talking about on the podcast is the marijuana bill. We were going to hold our recording today because there was a finance committee in the Senate that was going to consider medicinal marijuana. It was on the agenda Tuesday in finance. Then they moved it to Thursday. And now it looks like it's been punted once again to this coming Tuesday. That's right. We are intrigued to find out more about how much money it will bring into the state. And so that will be an aspect of the bill that has yet to have been discussed. And, you know, a lot of these cultural issues or these wedge issues or social issues, however you want to describe them, like critical race theory, the battle lines are along partisan lines. This is not necessarily about partisanship, at least over on the Republican side. We're hearing that the Senate Republicans are very divided about this issue. But we would assume, because the Hastert rule is used over in the Senate, and that's a rule that we've talked about before. Former Speaker of the House at the in Congress, Dennis Hastert, had a rule that you had to have over 50% of your caucus in support to move the bill. That, from all we've heard, that is still the rule in the Senate. So they must have the majority of the caucus to be able to move this bill, but it must be very close. It has to be pretty close. Speaking of other close bills, we have spoken a little bit about the big energy bill in the House. And it was a headline this week for sure that the bill popped back up after it's been a few weeks, kind of forgot about it. And we're not involved in it, so it's easy for us to forget about. But there was a hearing on it earlier in the week, and then it came to House rules yesterday evening and then went straight to the floor last night. And session was supposed to start at 4 p.m., and House Rules was supposed to start at 3. We kept getting notices House Rules is going to be at 3.30 during first recess, and so that means that the House session didn't actually get rolling on the energy bill until I don't know six something Mm -hmm. and when the debate started Representative Harrison got up and gave her speech on why she did not support the bill and said and Mr. Speaker just in case you don't hear me or I don't press it fast enough I'd like to object to third reading and he looked at her and said then you're gonna have to say it then oh (laughs) Uh, or like you're going to have to be quick or something. And so she was when the time came. And then there was kind of some chatter. And I think you saw that Travis Sane tweeted and said, I think I just heard the speaker say midnight session. Any legislation at the General Assembly has to pass three readings. The first reading is when your bill gets introduced. And every bill that gets introduced passes first reading. And then it gets assigned to a committee. The second reading is essentially your first floor vote. And on policy bills, and this is a policy bill, you can have your second reading and your third reading in the same day unless a member objects. That means the bill gets put off till the next day. It could actually be put off beyond that. So Representative Harrison was getting her objection in early because sometimes under the rules, the speaker could not hear maybe there was an objection to third reading. So she lodged that objection very early in the debate. That's right. And so there was a break. The speaker said the House will be at ease for 10 minutes. 
and we will check back in in 10 minutes. And that actually took about 45 minutes to an hour. And that was because the Democrats were caucusing, trying to decide, okay, do we want to come back at midnight or do we want to just go ahead and do this now? And it's like eight o'clock at this point. So it's a four hour difference. Uh, Keep that in mind. And they decided that they were going to come back at midnight. I think there was speculation that Representative Harrison said, I'll withdraw my objection, but someone else has an objection now. So I think, I believe that is what happened. Mm -hmm. I think it was Representative Becky Carney. I'm not sure about that though. And then when they came back at midnight, there was no debate on the bill. Well, first let's back up. Why, for listeners out there, why did the speaker just not uh, say, okay, we're going to have our regular session on Thursday morning or Thursday afternoon? Why did he wait until midnight to do this? So the vote on the bill was fairly close, and there were going to be some members missing today. The speaker has referenced a couple times this week that they have a few members who are sick, and some that were there yesterday but would not be able to be there today. So he was going to lose enough members that it could be dangerous for the bill passing third reading. What was surprising to me as I listened to the session last night was, you know, they had the vote, but Democrats didn't put up another argument at third reading. So it felt so perfunctory just just to have this vote. Yeah, and that's something you and I discussed today. Like, what was the point of objecting to third reading if you're not even going to put up a fight when the time comes? The communications that are coming out are, you know, what you would expect from a midnight session. This was drafted behind closed doors and voted on in the middle of the night. I saw some tweets that said something like, Republicans are forcing us back at 12.01 to vote on this bill. So those sorts of things are probably why they went ahead with that midnight session. And the Republican messaging looks to be, we are here at midnight doing the people's work. I do think Democrats missed an opportunity for the media to cover that third reading debate because we did see last night, the Insider usually comes out at midnight. The Insider held their their edition until around 12.30, 12.45. And the Insider, by the way, is a subscription newspaper that's a part of the News and Observer. So it it. It feels to me like a missed opportunity to get up and just just you know pound away again on your message. Speaking of what that message is, there are just a couple controversial provisions in that bill. It is a lengthy bill. And one of them is that they're shutting down some coal-powered plants throughout the state and it appears that we'll be replacing at least partially with natural gas and more progressive members have an issue with that reliance on natural gas. The other big issue is that it allows Duke Energy to set rate making for three-year periods instead of one-year periods. And I think those are kind of the big bucket issues. The carbon footprint is supposed to be reduced by 61% under this bill. Mm -hmm. Democrats, Governor Cooper specifically, would like it to be at 70%. It seems to me that this 
bill, which is, again, a very close vote. I think Republicans were able to get 60 votes last night. Feels to me like we're heading for, well, we're going to go to the Senate from here. But if it stays as is, we're looking at a veto showdown. I think it's important to think about this bill just like you think about any other bill. And on the floor, Representative Soka said that he turned, he got up to speak on the bill and said, y'all know how this goes. This is like, he used some sports analogy. Um, I think maybe a football analogy. It's before halftime, essentially. And the bill is going to change. It is going to go through many more drafts. So this is what we have right now. And we'd like to get it over to the Senate. But some of his Republican colleagues disagreed with where the bill is right now and the state it's in. It, it did attract some no votes from conservative members. Uh, Representative John Torbett, who's, who's been on the podcast before, voted no on the bill. Right. One bill that we have been tracking for quite some time is the criminal justice reform bill led by Senator Danny Britt. This is Senate Bill 300. He was in a House Judiciary Committee yesterday presenting a proposed committee substitute of Senate Bill 300. Uh, Sarah Stevens, the Speaker Pro Tem, was presiding over the Judiciary 2 Committee, and it brought up some interesting debate and some legislative maneuvers. So the PCS for that bill had gone out at 9 o'clock the night before, which is the required time for a PCS to go out if you're going to be changing a bill. So that went out to the J2 committee members, and then we get to committee at 11 a.m. on Wednesday. And it appeared that that PCS was not even the latest PCS. They had changed the bill that morning, and so members seemed to be a little bit confused. And Representative Joe John said he wanted, what was his motion? Motion not to... Not to have the PCS in front of the committee. And stated that, you know, he goes to bed early and he didn't have time to read through this bill that's 30 pages long. And Representative McNeil said, I didn't either, but let's go ahead and move forward. Using the classic argument, we hear it a lot when these motions come up. This bill has a long way to go. It's got to go to rules after this, and then it's got to go to the floor. You will have your opportunity to amend the bill at those stops. And to Representative John's point, and he's a former judge, he takes his role on the Judiciary Committee very seriously. He, he reads every bill. He likes to listen to stakeholders. He is prepared for committee. And he believes, and I think a lot of legislators believe, that judiciary issues need to be debated in the Judiciary Committee. The Judiciary Committees, while not 100% attorneys, that is a large concentration of attorneys on those J committees. And it's, I find when they're debating judicial bills or judiciary bills, partisanship does tend to go by the wayside, and they're talking about the practical effect of this provision and that provision, and and I think he made a fair point, but he was ruled out. His motion was denied by Chairperson Sarah Stevens. 
That's right. And then he called for division and division was not called. Yeah, not technically called in the sense that there was a division vote. It was, we, I call for division, which is an opportunity for members to raise their hand or stand up. I noticed Democrats did not stand up. That should have been something they did, was immediately right. stand up for division. But the chairperson just said having division, um, the vote for division fails and the bill is before us maneuvers again it goes to the point we've talked about on the podcast before that the chairperson has a lot of discretion on how the vote is called so the bill was before the committee and we heard a lot of testimony from some advocates out there some in support some had some concerns because this PCS had changed and by the way when the PCS came over from the Senate it did have buy-in from a far-reaching group of organizations, including the ACLU, the John Locke Foundation, uh, Americans for Prosperity. So it was a consensus bill, but that PCS did get some pushback, especially around body cam footage. Right. First, I want to say that the PCS that we saw the night before had probably four or five big changes in it. And some of those changes were concerning to those stakeholders. And once the Judiciary Committee started, there were a series of amendments. And it felt like every amendment was putting back in things that had already been in the bill on the Senate side. So It may have been easier in the end to just run the Senate bill as is, but there was that one change that remained, and that was the body cam footage. So right now, and you'll recall this from the Andrew Brown shooting of last year, if there is a family of a victim who wants to see the body cam footage, essentially that family can ask for that. And that determination can be made. The new amendment or the new language in the bill would say that the family has to have a hearing on that. So they would have to go to court anyway. And there was some debate in the committee about, well, don't they already have to do that now? And what what does that look like? And I believe Representative Reeves said, Why don't we go with the language that was over on the Senate side because all of the stakeholders were bought in and then Representative Stevens said, okay, if you have the option of our new language or just taking it out altogether, what would you pick? And Representative Reeves said, I'm not a stakeholder in this process, but if I were given those options, I would go with the option from the Senate. (laughs) And um, she asked him again. And so at one point, he finally just said, okay, I'll take away your suspense. Let's take it out. And so that uh, provision was removed from the bill, which would uh, allow it to be what the law is right now. No new provisions around releasing body cam footage. Mm -hmm. It was noticeable yesterday, the difference between the Senate and the House Judiciary Committee is so vastly different. And Senator Danny Britt is presenting his bill, and he he gets to make some comments about the bill. And, And then it was just, all of a sudden, 
just back and forth on the committee. I even noticed that some that were advocates that were speaking on the bill weren't even being recognized by the chair. They were just talking directly (laughs) to legislators. And to look at Senator Britt coming from the Senate Judiciary Committee, coming from the Senate where things seem to be so orderly, he just seemed to be like, where am I? What's going on here? And and I noticed he was, you know, just, just seemed to be watching the fireworks like the rest of us. This week, we got to sit down with Senator Vicki Sawyer, who's in her second term and has really made a splash for the work that she has done over on the Senate side. She's kind of part of that gang of three, I would say, mm-hmm. that um, have really moved some big pieces of legislation. And so we talked to her about her upbringing, kind of how she approaches legislation and working over in the Senate. The Do Politics Better podcast is supported by the North Carolina Travel Industry Association. Founded in 1955, NCTIA has a distinguished history of partnering with the North Carolina General Assembly to strengthen and preserve tourism in North Carolina. Visit nctia.travel for more information on how you can support your local tourism destination and the thousands of North Carolina jobs it creates. Senator Vicki Sawyer, in your second term in the North Carolina Senate, welcome. Can you start us off by just telling us a little bit about your district, what you think makes your district special? Yeah, I've heard uh, a lot of folks talk about this, but truly my district goes from farms to Ferraris. Mm -hmm. So in, in Yadkin County, we have a lot of beautiful vineyards, farms, old tobacco farms. In Southern Iredell County, close to where I live, we have Trump National Golf Course. And we have the baby who lives in my district. The baby, the rapper. The baby, the rapper. Okay. Yeah. So uh, he actually has two homes, from my understanding, in our district. He has a show home and his regular home, oh. and he has Ferraris to boot. Okay. So when I've said farms to Ferraris, it truly is that in my district. So it's a mini microcosm in North Carolina. So your career, your professional career, is in insurance. Correct. Can you talk a little bit about your agency and and what you do back home for a living? Yeah, so I actually started out in insurance, not because I loved insurance (laughs) or grew up as a little girl to say, oh, I want to be an insurance agent when I grow up. Um, But I did fall in love with my husband, who has an insurance agency. His his family had started, and then when they retired, we started out on our own. So um, we started from scratch. I was six months pregnant, and we had no income. We had a big mortgage. We had to hire a staff. And uh, so my husband and I went to work. And I also started um, flipping houses at that time. So this is 2002 when we started. Um, So we basically, both of us had about three or four jobs at the same time. I remember one morning coming downstairs, baby in hand, and I'm crying. And he says, what's wrong? I was like, I don't know how we're going to make payroll this week. I don't know how we're going to make a mortgage. And I'm just in tears, you know, how are we going to feed ourselves? And uh, he goes, oh, babe, don't worry. I've never met a poor insurance agent. (laughs) I said, buddy, did you look in the mirror this morning? (laughs) So thankfully we made it through. We made it through. We have a couple locations. We have over 4,000 households insured, uh, great staff, wonderful family business. And so we're very blessed, but it was a lot of hard work. I bet. I yeah. bet. So you are an impressive politician. You came out of a very volatile primary mm-hmm. to get to the Senate. Can you tell us a little <laughs> bit about your political career? Yeah. How 
you decided to get into this line of work in addition sure. to, to selling insurance. Yeah, so begrudgingly. That's mm-hmm. when people ask me how you got into politics, I'll say, well, kicking and screaming and begrudgingly because I truly still don't enjoy the art of politics. Okay. That's not a thing that I enjoy. Mm. I enjoy policy. When I came home from the hospital, my parents brought me home to a trailer in Davidson County, North Carolina, in a trailer park. Um, and um, my dad was a really nice man when he wasn't drinking, but mm. when he decided to drink, he was an awful man. Um, he was very abusive. My mom had suffered with mental illness and bipolar disorder her entire life, and so mm. we're talking about the you know 75, 80. That was very mm-hmm. little understand understood. So one day she just couldn't take it anymore, and she never came home. So at that point, we were in elementary school. I'm probably 10 years old, and thank goodness my grandparents stepped in. So at that point, my father's parents stepped in, and my church stepped up, and my teachers were amazing. So if it wasn't for my grandparents, my church, and my teachers, we'd be having a much different conversation. I would be a statistic. So when it was my turn to start having children, and I wanted to instill those three pillars in them, you know, faith and family, community. I started um, volunteering for my church and for my school and as a coach. Well, when I got there, I saw, kept asking questions, questions like, well, why does educational funding work this way? Or why do I have to ask four times to get a building inspected and it doesn't come through? Mm-hmm. And my goodness, my taxes are so expensive. Where does all this money go? Well, I kept getting answers I really didn't like. So I looked into the political world and saw some local candidates that I really liked who shared my same values and I started working on their campaigns, helping them get elected. Well, the seat opened up and next thing I know, those folks who I'd helped get elected along the way decided, hey, it's your turn. (laughs) You're going to have to listen to our advice. And so I you know, after a bottle or two of wine, um, they convinced me to run. Now, at that time, it was not necessarily the district that we were supposed to be in, but I think what you're talking about with the primary is, uh, so here's this, you know, policy wonk, and I'm just new to politics, um, especially with my name on the ballot, and here comes what they called the Lion of the Senate. (laughs) Two days before uh, the filing period was over, uh, we had a long-serving senator jump in the race against me, and boy, did I get a lesson in politics from that point on. Mm -hmm. Long-serving, very powerful, lots of friends. Mm -hmm. And you emerged out of that primary. It was an amazing feat. Yeah, it was a great primary. you look back on it kind of like childbirth. You don't really want to do it every day, but it was fun to get through it. And yeah. man, I made some of the best friends and um, they are still my political allies and best friends today. Um, so yeah, it was tough to come against someone who hadn't been in Iredale County for very long. And remember there was two other people in the race. One was an elected school board official. The other one was uh, a guy from Yadkin area that uh, had worked in the party a long time. So I felt mm. like I was you know, the newcomer. And um, I guess I just thought I'd go about my weight. <laughs> I did my weight okay. class and I, and I did good. But I do also understand that because of my volunteerism in the community, because of our business, because I know people, because I care about things, and I'm not ultra right wing, I am absolutely common sense approach candidate, that that really resonated with people and they came out and they came out in droves for me. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, you have surprised some people. When you came in, you came in with a bang. And your freshman class of last year, y'all have been very successful in the kind of old school Senate. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about working with those folks and how you approach legislation? 
Yeah, I could not be anywhere uh, that I am today without the help of my friends. So going back to that primary, when I came into Raleigh, I really did it wrong. I came in with a chip on my shoulder. I felt mm-hmm. like I'd, I'd beat an incumbent, I'd beat the party guy, um, that Raleigh was against me because I never should have won that race. I think I hear that um, we never thought you had a chance until we saw the polling like the month before, mm-hmm. and uh, and here you come. So I felt on the outside, and as part of that outside, I felt like I could make a change because of myself Mm -hmm. that was the wrong approach I quickly looked around as a freshman and said oh my gosh I'm on an island and this is not a place to be up here is on an island by yourself so I was grateful that I had some friends in my freshman class reach out uh, namely Jim Perry and uh, and Todd Johnson and uh, they said come back off your island we'll we'll take good care of you so Mm. we've we've stuck together ever since and um, not those just those folks and there's a whole host of them that we really work well together and it's it's important so this year, we've noticed that some of your bills have interesting bill titles. Oh. <laughs> How have you chosen? What, what is your strategy with your bill uh, titles this year? Well, that was because I named one bill the kiss. Of, we gave it the kiss of death. So I was getting my hair done one day, and a lady who's the cosmetologist said, hey, why can't we dermaplane, right? So dermaplaning, for those folks of you out there who aren't, uh, maybe Brian, maybe you don't get dermaplane that you know, but you do get straight razor shaved. So a bar, basically, it's a straight razor shave for a female. So we thought, hey, this is a great piece of legislation. Cosmetologists could do a straight razor shave for women, but we call it dermaplaning. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't catch the title. And the, t- the bill title came out of st- uh, strap drafting as a scope of practice. And that was the kiss oh. of death of that mm-hmm. bill. <laughs> so I looked at my legislative assistant and I said, we are never doing that again. <laughs> so, so the bill titles came in from that point. So I will uh, elicit help from Senator Todd Johnson um, and Senator Perry and all my other buddies and got a title to come up. And so that's how East Salvage Express came in. And, okay. and the nice part about it is, is I actually remember what they talk about when yeah. they give me the silly bill title name so um i was like oh yeah i remember because yeah. when they come up to you and go what is what is going on with a senate bill 320 i'm like i don't know i don't know what 320 right. is but ask me what you salvage express is we're good that is you yeah they're they're memorable right yeah. and that helps let's talk a little bit about uh some a bill that you've been working on this session and and thank you for sharing a little background about your personal life you're tackling a tough issue with child marriage, and we've talked about it on the podcast. Um, you brought a bill, you filed a bill, you, you said it was your ideal bill, you had been working on it. Mm-hmm. Then you were really living the art of compromise, mm-hmm. and so it, it evolved into a bill that got a little bit of criticism, but then you were able to come back strong again. Can you give us some background about the child marriage bill, which is one of the you know, hot bills, bills to watch in the General Assembly. Totally admire you for taking on this tough, tough, tough issue. But can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, thank you for the opportunity. You know, that was a bill that I wanted to file last session. Mm -hmm. I knew that I didn't have the political juice to get it across the line because it is such a tough bill. Mm -hmm. Now, for me, it just seems like a no-brainer, you know. Um, You're less than 18 years old. You really can't enter into a contract, you, you know, for any other kind of good or services, so I should be able to get married. You see the research, and it's just really tough seeing when women or men are married at a young age that that cycle of poverty that I told you I grew up in, I mean, that that continues on itself. So I felt the need to, to file the legislation as it was, which is 18. 
But when I started talking around amongst my colleagues and my peers, more or less my older colleagues, there was just a generational divide. It had nothing to do with a Republican versus Democrat. It really had to do with rural versus urban and age. And so I didn't want to discount their feelings and their personal experiences. You know, mm -hmm. they, I had um, many of them tell me, hey, my mom and dad were married at a young age. It was tough, but they got um, pregnant out of wedlock, and this was a choice, and I don't want to take that choice away from some people. When you think about foster kids, you know, if they fall in love at 17 years mm -hmm. old and they just want to get the heck out of the system, mm -hmm. do you really want to disallow them that ability to, to start their own lives and move forward? So we did, I think, I feel like I fumbled the football a lot through that. Um, so it's sweet of you guys to think that it was artful the way it happened. <laughs> but it was really a lot of just conversations and getting people on both sides to think about it. And yes, at one point you saw, I, were, I think you guys were there for that judicial mm -hmm. committee mm -hmm. meeting when we offered the, the language and they were not happy at how it worked out at all. I feel like a lot of folks... I mean, even the friends you were working with, they had criticisms, and that must have been a tough... I could tell, mm -hmm. when you were presenting the PCS, I could tell you were pained by it, because you had, you, as you said in that committee, I had my ideal bill, but I, I think a lot of folks don't understand that a lot of work goes on behind the scenes. So you were having you know, conversations with all of your colleagues, and you were getting this input. So you were trying to get something that would pass. Mm -hmm. But then the bill transformed again. Can yes. you talk about how, what happened yeah. uh, to the extent you can share yeah. it? It So it goes from ideal to less than ideal, then it becomes a, another version that yeah. people are starting to rally behind. Yeah, so in order for that less perfect bill, I'll say, that came out the, the, before it isn't its perfect or in its form now um, it really was like both political sides got their cackles up and they mm -hmm. said oh you know there were some very mean tweets out there yeah. calling mm -hmm. some of our leaders pedophiles and mm -hmm. just some really egregious behavior understand the emotion behind that so I, I give them a pass on some of those things but um, so as the bill kept moving the leadership on both sides saw that what this is really intended to do is to help young women. Mm -hmm. And so how can we get this and be even more, com you know, even better compromised? So when we were getting towards the Senate floor, it was like a last minute Hail Mary pass. I remember Senator Rabin called me over and I felt like dead man walking across that bridge because he was going to call and ask me about this bill. Mm -hmm. And uh, I thought, oh gosh, here, it is. it's all going down. It's all going <laughs> down. I'm like not going to get this bill. And he set me in there and Senator Herring and and him were in there and they said hey I think we got a plan and what about this plan and it was the way the bill is that you see now and I almost kissed him you would have liked that that would probably be some more legislation about inappropriate behavior in the workplace but it was like the nice he was so sweet he said I, I hope you're okay with what this looks like and in tears of my eyes I said this is exactly you know what we needed from the beginning so he really came in and him and Senator Harrington saved the day on that and so for listeners out there, it's the four-year window bill under right. 18, right? So right. a 14-year-old, an 18-year-old, 16, and 19. Mm -hmm. um, I know a lot of legislators, you know, after that committee would have just said, 
forget it. I'm not doing this. I, you know, everyone's against it now. But you kept at it. Mm-hmm. What, what, what's in you that has you? I mean, your things, like you said, I saw the social media, mm-hmm. a lot of mean stuff out there. Yeah. But, but you were like, yeah, we're going to keep pressing. Yeah. What, what, where does this come from? Um, well, a lot because I know that I only get one shot at this thing. And so a lot of the conversations up here seems to me are just mind numbering, numbing about professional protectionism or, you know, just things that really don't matter to me. What matters to me is the protection of young women and safety and looking at these girls and if there's something I can do to help them, I'm going to go to the end to get it fixed. And so for me, taking this small step, I guess now it's a bigger step. Mm -hmm. Hopefully we'll complete that step and keep on moving forward. Um, I just was not going to take no for an answer. Well, when I was walking over that plank to go see (laughs) Senator Raven, I thought I was going to take no for an answer. But I was going to push it all the way through. And so gratefully, um, Ashton Clemens, Representative Ashton Clemens in the House, and Kristen Baker, Representative Mm -hmm. Kristen Baker, Jason Sane, they've picked it up on their side. And and hopefully we'll get a hearing shortly and uh, we can get it to the governor's desk. Yeah, I heard Majority Leader John Bell say that he thought his caucus was good with what you were doing. Good. I'm yeah. great to hear. Yeah. 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 So speaking of your legislative accomplishments, yeah. what would you say is the bill that you're most passionate about that you're working on or have worked on in the past? Mm-hmm. Gosh, well, we just talked about the one to me okay. is absolutely mm-hmm. the most passionate bill. Um, you know, there are certain things that um, I work on. And it's not because a lobbyist has come to me. So when you see my bills, for the most part, it's things that I've seen. One that Senator Rabin isn't happy about that I worked on a long time is uh, a roofing contractor bill. So this is a little policy wonky, but going to my insurance background, we used to have these fly-by-night roofers come in, and they would absolutely do a terrible job mm-hmm. on replacing somebody's roof, or they mm-hmm. would, you know, maliciously and intentionally hurt it and damage it. Oh, wow. They would be out of the uh, state after the storm was gone, and now my poor, like, you know, little old ladies literally were crying in front of me in my office because they could not afford a new roof. The insurance company knew that it was not properly installed. So we, my husband and I, had set up a sting operation before I got into the Senate to pull some of these guys out. Unfortunately, word got out, and so they all, none of the contractors showed up that day. But it was very passionate for me because sitting in front of those customers, when they're having to pull ten or fifteen thousand dollars out of their pocket that they simply did not have because of bad contractors, um, you know that I was like, I can I can do something about that. I've got yeah. I, mean, I got these tears in front of me, um, still working on that one. So that's the one <laughs> I did. I did get the big no from Senator Raymond on that one, but we were continuing to work forward and and hopefully uh, get it passed eventually. So right. you seem to have this soft spot for the underdog out there. Yeah, I do actually. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so to listeners out there, I just want to remind Senator Sawyer is a, is a Republican from Iredell County, conservative, mm-hmm. uh, practical conservative. Right. Is that fair? Yeah. Where does this come from? Does this come from your youth, from how you grew up? Or? Um, gosh, um, I, perhaps, uh, you know, I know that, again, I keep saying this, we only got one shot at this. I only get, well, I don't get tomorrow guaranteed, much less Mm -hmm. two years. But when we get elected, we've just got, you know, this little bit amount of time that we're guaranteed to make a difference. And yeah, so I don't necessarily want to be up here fighting for some of these bigger issues that everybody has 15 lobbyists for, and they're all are, you know, clamoring around to get a piece of the pie. That doesn't interest me, but making true substantive policy changes that are better for all North Carolinians, for me, that's where all of the fun is. All right. This is the question you've been waiting for, I'm sure. (laughs) If you had a magic wand and you could fix one thing in our political system today, Mm -hmm. what would that one thing be? 
well, I was warned against this, <laughs> <laughs> which means I'm going to do it anyway. Okay. Yeah. Um, I really would eliminate all C4s. And I would allow corporate donations to go to uh, individual candidates. I see up here all the time that legislators are not necessarily bullied, but they fear what's going to come out at the election box. And mm -hmm. every two years, you see the same old fights over and over and over again. And, you know, um, they it's just absolutely, I think it's a, a corrosive to our political process. So, you know, I, I joke. You see, so I'm from NASCAR country, so you could come out on the Senate floor and just say, this vote was brought to you by Friends of the Animals. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody knows, you know, that, that the Friends of the Animals supported you and you support their legislation. Yeah. So for me, removing that dark money politics and allowing corporations or businesses to give directly to a candidate so you know who and where their allegiance lies to me would be a huge, huge win. Okay. It seems to me it would be more honest, right? Yeah. Because you can hide the dark money, but if it shows up in your account, we can at least see mm -hmm. on your filing that, yeah, you took this money. Yeah. It does seem like an honest reform. Yeah, I, that's, I doubt that will ever happen, though. No, it won't. <laughs> yeah, I think no. there are some C4s who would oppose it. That's probably why, <laughs> which is probably, I can see the mailers coming in. <laughs> that's funny. Well, Senator Vicki Sawyer, we appreciate you being on the podcast. We appreciate all you do for your district, all you do for the state. You certainly know how to do politics better. Thank you so much. Well, thank you both so much, Brian Sky. One of the great things about this podcast is getting to sit down for a half hour with a senator or representative and learn about what their background is, where they come from, it kind of informs the way they legislate, the issues they bring forward, and how they approach those issues. That was especially true for this interview with Senator Sawyer. And I liked when she said that, you know, she's not really a politics person, but knowing that she's doing things for North Carolinians really moves her on legislation. And that's how she decides what she is going to work on. After an interview... I oftentimes on the drive home or later, even when I'm listening to the interview, I, I feel like I missed a question. And she talked a little bit yesterday about how Representative Ashton Clemens, a Democrat, has picked up her legislation in the House. And that's kind of remarkable in, in and of itself, the way she approaches this. She shepherds this bill through the Senate, and what a process that was. The ups, the downs, the compromise, the conversation with Senator Rabin she talked about. And now she's got Representative Clemens leading that bill on the House side. Of course, she also has Representative Kristen Baker. But she really does approach these issues in a bipartisan, nonpartisan way. It's refreshing. The child marriage bill that she referenced has already gone through a judiciary committee in the House, so it will then be going to rules. And it had that judiciary committee hearing, wasn't it judiciary? Mm -hmm. Judiciary committee hearing a few weeks back. Mm -hmm. So I am not sure if there is something holding it up or what that process looks like, but it does have that stop before going to the House floor. So we, I'm sure, will update folks on where that bill is. You and I were sitting after that Judiciary Committee in which the child marriage bill was being heard. We were just chatting with Majority Leader John Bell, 
and WREL reporter Travis Fain approaches our conversation. He just wants to ask Leader Bell uh, how this bill is being processed within the caucus. And, and Representative Bell said he thought this bill was fine within the caucus, but he would let him know more if, if that changed. So we talked about the cobra snake. Was it last week or the week before? Last week. Yeah. And this week there's an update that there was a small cub bear in a tree by Rex Hospital. So this is another bizarre animal news of Raleigh. And it was lured out of the tree by Raleigh Police Department with a Krispy Kreme donut. So it seems like a very North Carolina-centric story. Mm-hmm. Are we going to see legislation this week? I know we've, we've all over Twitter, all over social media, Senator Jay Chaudhary and Senator Wiley Nickel, whose districts were affected by the cobra snake mainly, they've been talking about filing legislation. Yeah, I believe they have a draft for that specifically for reptiles and snakes that they were pushing forward, but they know it's not going to go anywhere. So they're working on the local level with Raleigh City Council on an ordinance. And Raleigh, I understand, they've already seized the snakes from the young man who uh, his his snake was on the lamp. And we've learned that the snake didn't just get lost two weeks ago. That snake had been gone for quite some time. Like seven months. Insane. Yeah. We said a few weeks back that we were going to do a tweet of the week, and then we completely fell off and did not do that. Sorry. Yeah, it's your fault. <laughs> yeah. We're going to blame it on our producer who doesn't exist. But this week, we were looking through some tweets, NCGA related, and decided that the tweet of the week would be last night when Representative Pittman was talking about his dislikes for the energy bill. He said something about deer meat, and then Colin Campbell tweeted, quote, was not expecting today's NCGA energy bill debate to include a claim that solar panels cause deer meat to be inedible. Tweet of the week. Tweet of the week. And then I noticed this morning that Marshall Conrad, who works for Representative John Zoka, who is also a listener of the podcast, he said, don't tell my wife this because we've been eating a lot of deer meat in our family. So next week, we understand that the House is not coming back until Wednesday? That's right. It's going to be a light week over there as they still work through budget stuff. I believe that Representative Sane tweeted today that they were in appropriations and they, the appropriations folks would be staying through the weekend. Senator Jim Perry, who does a really good job of keeping his constituents up to date on the process, he does a really good job of explaining the process. He was telling his constituents back in Lenore and Wayne counties that he was not expecting a final budget till mid to late August. So we could be here maybe around Labor Day or even beyond. This week is our 20th episode of Do Politics Better. It's incredible to think about. Our first episode, I remember we thought maybe your mom would listen and my wife would listen. Turns out that neither of them listen. (laughs) That is so true. The podcast has been so much fun, and we appreciate all the feedback we get. We go to the building, people make a comment about our guests, and just the thank yous we get for, for doing this podcast means so much. 
It's really been fun for us. It's been a little fun project that we get to work on and we get to learn about members. We thought that this would just be some creative exercise for you and I to kind of have some fun and process the week, but it has turned into more than that. A People lot of- keep saying to us, you're going to run out of legislators. We're aware. <laughs> Yeah, we are. We are aware of that, but we also have some great conversations lined up with some non-legislators once we get out of session. We've had some commitments from some really interesting people that work inside the General Assembly that we think listeners are going to want to listen to. But in the meantime, we're still in session. So as long as we're in session, we're going to keep pulling legislators in here and, and learning more about them. So again, thanks for your support. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe and listen to us on whatever platform you choose. We hope that you have a relaxing weekend this weekend. We hope you have a great week next week. And remember to do politics better. Welcome back to another episode of I Know Danny Britt. (laughs) (laughs) He spoke to me yesterday in the hall, but I was on the phone and I didn't hear it. But I'm glad I waved to him nervously. <laughs> <laughs>